Hello and welcome to Fade In, a podcast from the club's screenwriting at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, where we take a critical look at film storytelling. Our inaugural episode today was inspired by five little words, based on a true story. If you watch a biographical film, chances are you'll see this tagline appear at the beginning. Indeed, there's something perennially appealing about a work of fiction like a film being inspired by real-life events, but translating true events onto the screen has, and will likely remain, a tricky topic. What's the responsibility of the filmmaker to the person whose life is being adapted? What's the responsibility of the audience in interpreting the truth? And finally, where should we draw the line of separation between fiction and reality when a creator is adapting their own story? In this episode, we'll consider all those questions and more, as we examine three recent critically acclaimed films which were all, in some shape or form, inspired by true events and true individual stories. Green Book, I, Tanya, and The Farewell. In a certain way, each of these three films attempts to shed light on a marginalized group or individual in the name of gender equality, racial and cultural equality, or perhaps both. And yet, to varying degrees, the respective accuracy of these three films has been debated amongst viewers. I'll be joined by SVC's VP of Finance, Marta Nielska, and our social events coordinator, Connie Zen, to discuss how effective each of these films are under the true story genre, whether fidelity to real-life events should be a goal for filmmakers when crafting such stories, and finally, how we as an audience should appropriately respond to the words based on a true story. We hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm joined now by our VP Finance, Marta Nielska, and our VP of Social Events, Connie Zhang. Marta, Connie, how are you both doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm also good. Great. Uh, I'm really excited to discuss each of these three films with you two. Uh, but before we do, let's just set the record straight. Is it biopic or biopic? It's definitely biopic. <laughs> Connie? Biopic. Interesting. Um, I'm going to have to veer towards the side of biopic, so I'm afraid it's two to one. Darn. The correct side, of course. Biography, biopic, come on. We didn't invent the English language, I'm afraid, uh, so we're just going to have to go with that. But enough with pronunciation. Uh, let's get on to the matter at hand. Um, so we have three films that we're going to discuss today, the first of which is Green Book. Green Book was inspired by a true story, as the opening tagline says, but as our research led us to learn, things were far more ambiguous. The film recounts the journey taken by acclaimed African-American pianist Don Shirley and his Italian driver, Tony the Lip Vallelonga, in the South during the early 1960s. Over the course of their travels, the once racist Vallelonga learns to overcome his prejudice through his burgeoning friendship with Shirley. The titular Green Book refers to the travel guide compiled by Victor Hugo Green for Black people traveling in the American South at the time, an aspect which noticeably took a backseat in the film's story. The film was co-written by Peter Ferrelli, who was also the director, along with Peter Hayes Curry and Tony Vallelonga's own son, Nick Vallelonga. Soon after its release, Green Book garnered much critical acclaim and many accolades, most notably the Academy Award for Best Film of 2019. However, it received just as much controversy from viewers and relatives of Shirley alike for what was deemed an inaccurate portrayal of the two central characters' relationship, as well as an overly simplistic portrayal of race relations in America at the time. Prior to the film's production, Nick Vallelonga approached an elderly Shirley to adapt his story, 
but waited until after Shirley passed away in 2013, the same year that his father, Tony, passed away, to release it. Now, whether this decision was made at Shirley's specific request or on the part of the filmmakers remains questionable. Regardless, it led Nick Vallelonga and co to focalize the story through his father's experiences rather than Shirley's, as they had more information on Tony through interviews Nick conducted with him. This was a creative decision which many viewers felt negatively impacted the story's overall presentation. Shirley's living descendants were quick to decry the film, citing it as, quote, a symphony of lies. They criticized the misleading portrayal of Shirley as an isolationist who maintained little contact with his family, claiming that Shirley was, in fact, very close with his living brothers at the time. Moreover, they asserted that Shirley and Tony Vallelonga had a strictly professional employer-employee relationship and were never close friends as depicted in the film. Conversely, audio recordings from Shirley before his death from the 2010 documentary Lost Bohemia seem to verify many of Green Book's plot details, which above all includes his close relationship with Vallelonga. Putting aside the film's accuracy or lack thereof, many critics still derided Green Book for what was perceived as an unnuanced and heavy-handed, one could say black and white, depiction of racism and its adherence to tired tropes such as Tony acting as a quote, white savior figure. Many have interpreted this as a consequence of the filmmakers placing the emphasis on Tony Vallelonga as the protagonist rather than Don Shirley in a lack of consultation, whether out of willful blindness or not, with Shirley's living family in the writing of this film. On the other hand, many have supported Green Book's fundamentally anti-racism message, even while acknowledging some of its creative missteps, NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar being one such individual. Now, given all the context about Green Book, I'm curious to hear from both of you, uh, what do you think is the responsibility of a filmmaker to the person or subject matter they're adapting, such as in the case of a movie like Green Book? I think that it's a complicated question and it comes from the separation of fiction and nonfiction. The primary problem for me with a lot of fictional accounts of movies is that they're, they're trying to gain something from the fact that they're based on a true story. There's clearly a reason why the filmmakers are telling us it's based on a true story. And so because of that, like telling people that something is based on a true story is almost like legitimacy, I think. Like the idea is that if it's based on a true story, the ideas it puts out, um, the concepts it's um, trying to express through its storyline are somehow more legitimate and more true based on a true story. However, um, like I wonder to what extent that exploits or instrumentalizes the experience of real people and moreover at that point if it does instrumentalize and exploit the experiences of real people for the sake of like a theme or idea that the director specifically or the writer wants to tease out then um that feels like the use of another person's life um for your own personal gain. And I would argue that at that point, you do have a responsibility to the people you're basing the story on. Mm -hmm. And one thing I sort of found interesting going off that um, in our research of the film's accuracy was you know, not so much uh, that it was inaccurate points because as, as we learned, uh, a lot of the basic plot beats and information were in fact true. However, there's a difference between something that did happen and how it's you know translated in the film medium and how the filmmakers choose to go about it. 
Um, so there, there are some instances which are, you know, documented as happening, you know, based on the accounts of Shirley and Vallelonga themselves uh, that don't quite um, hit the mark, I think, in terms of, um, you know, how, how the film tries to portray that message. I don't know, one small moment that stands out for me uh, is, is the whole scene when they're in prison um, and then Shirley uh, calls Robert Kennedy um, and it, you know, gets them out. Now, apparently that did happen because Shirley was close with Mr. Kennedy. But I think just in the context of the film for someone who didn't know that previous history, uh, it seems like a bit of a, a deus ex machina moment. So even just going back to the idea of crafting a good story uh, versus you know, accuracy to whatever subject you have, there, there's a very fine balancing act you have to take in terms of uh, trying to satisfy you know, both those ends. I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying I did, I really enjoyed the movie, um, but to specifically answer your question, I think responsibility, well, it just depends on if you're trying to paint and interpret characters or if you're trying to chronicle an event. I think that some parts of Green Book fell on both, um, both aspects because I feel like I came out of this film knowing so much more about Tony, knowing so much more about Tony's family than I did about um, Shirley. And the strange thing is, you know, for a movie that's based on race and that should be based on nuanced characters, I feel like we see so like what we know about Shirley is based on his race. We know of his sufferings of race. And while I think this movie being lighthearted isn't an issue because I don't think that black suffering movies always need to be bleak where, you know, hope and friendship and all these good things come at the end. I think that, however, there are movies who have done it better. For example, um, Black Klansman, that was a really good one where we can see someone who is black and someone who is I don't know if this is the right word to use, but maybe white adjacent marginalized uh, group. And we can see that these are nuanced people. I understand this person beyond who he is as uh, his surface skin color. And I think that maybe this movie fell short on it because we shifted the perspective too much on Tony. And I feel like even if it's not inaccurate, it loses the integrity of the story. Yeah, I mean, I to add to that, I think that that's, even more clear with like what the what the film tries to do surrounding LGBTQ plus themes than it is around its themes of race because you like the themes of race are clearly taking um, as they probably should center stage in the story but to me again and this I think highlights the tension that Vikram teased out with um, you know yes uh, maybe Shirley did know Kennedy but it seems like a deus ex machina for the story um in that same way i think that like the lgbtq plus thing while it may have been true like while shirley may have actually been part of the lgbtq plus community it's such a random thing that's kind of thrown into the story and it's never truly um addressed or brought up beyond um, this, again, kind of like very surface level to me, white savior moment where he's, um, you know, taken in by the police and Tony comes and like bribes the police to let him go. And I think that in, in a similar way to like Connie's comparison to uh, Black Klansman, you compare that to something like Moonlight, which is a fully fleshed out you know, example of a Black man who is also LGBTQ plus and um, the 
the nuance just doesn't really compare. Like when you think of Moonlight, I think um, I first and foremost think of that person. And I secondly think of their race and their, um, like their identification with the LGBTQ plus community. But with um, the Green Book, it doesn't really feel like that. I think it also can, like, it's also, I take a different view of this than Connie does because I I didn't enjoy the movie. Like, I think the movie as a story um, is not as interesting. And I can understand changing things in real life in order to enhance the idea of your story or to like, um, you know, flesh out what you really want to bring out about it that's important. But um, I don't think that the changes that have been made in the Green Book are necessarily working towards an interesting idea or something that's like really powerful um, in terms of the storyline that's given to us. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Moonlight, Marta, and I'm just thinking of Mahershala Ali's performance in this film. Uh, And based on the research we conducted, we learned that he based a lot of that on, you know, archival footage, uh, the documentary Lost in Bohemia, uh, which we referenced earlier, uh, whereas Vicka Mortensen uh, had a little bit more to work with, you know, one, because Nick Vallelonga, obviously, his father was a main character. So, you know, he had that connection and all that um, interview data um, to work with. And I, I believe um, Vigo and his wife um, did, you know, dine with uh, Valalonga Sr. Um, before he passed away. So they have that connection as well. Whereas Mahershala um, Ali um, did not have that opportunity when portraying Dong Shirley. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from both of you in terms of those two performances in particular, do you think um, an accuracy and or connection on the part of the actors to real people, you know, helped or hindered each of those performances? Yeah, I mean, um, I'll say on that topic that it, it comes out of like a really big focus on realism. I mean, I think that realism as a concept, you know, if you're going to be pretentious about it and trace it back to the 1800s, then um, it comes out of the idea of like a type of social justice. It's realism is about representing people as they actually are in order to not feed into the delusions of people who don't live those lives. It comes from like wanting to represent poor people, for example, as they really are, so that rich people don't like fantasize about sheep herders living simple yet very fulfilled lives when actually like they're starving, you know? And it's um, it does come out of a root of social justice. And I do think that realism, because of that, is especially applicable to this movie because it is just very revealing that the person who, you know, had a lot to work with and had a lot of like, you know, real connection and the family we get to meet and like the character we focus on is white. That's very revealing considering like, you know, where the realism is focused on in this story. But um, like, that's not so much the case with um, Shirley, of course. And I think, you know, the movie its message of anti-racism is about social justice. It's claiming to say something real about race, or at least that's what it seems to be saying. So um, it does feel, I think, kind of insulting. And I imagine it must've been kind of insulting to Shirley's family to not be consulted on it. Because if you're claiming to say something real about race, well, it's a pretty big misstep to not consult with the people who are 
most impacted by that. It's interesting, Connie, I'm thinking of the, the article you shared with me just before we, we started here. Uh, it was a piece written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he was actually defending the film. And to Marta's point, uh, one of the things he brought up um, in his uh, dissection of the criticism of the film uh, was that, you know, you don't necessarily need to have the same experience as the person you're documented or documenting or adapting. Um, you know, you can still have that, you know, core idea that you want to convey. Um, so that seems to be a little bit at odds with the, the idea of, you know, relatability and realism. And since you said you sort of admired the movie, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on that, Connie. So one of the big things about the film that, you know, everyone's debating is, you know, to like uh, Tony wasn't really ever confronted with his racism. It was kind of just this slow, like, progress of, you know, that here's this guy who won't even, he doesn't even like black people using his cups. And then all of a sudden he becomes very close. Um, and in terms of the, the realism that Marta is talking about, is it bad or good that Tony, like Tony was never confronted with his racism, that he never had this amazing transcendent moment? I think it depends. Should I stretch who this real person was to create a, a, better, a better story, better morals? Or perhaps should I stick to the truth that there is no moment of transcendence? There is no realization of, oh my God, I'm a terrible person. And you know this total understanding of what is going on because this is a real person. He's not a fictional hero. And in this case, I would argue the latter. The only thing that sort of holds me back is what you guys are talking about, the lack of con consultation to Shirley's family. That is the one thing that I would absolutely agree. I think that feels very degrading because fundamentally, even if Tony is the protagonist of the story, I think the weight of it is carried on to um, Shirley. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, it was a very ambiguous, you know, situation because some say that Shirley specifically told Nick Vallelonga not to consult his family, but of course it's a whole he said, she said, and you know, Mahershala Ali apparently called the family and apologized after the movie came out uh, in response to the criticism. Um, so I, I guess that's you know part and parcel with that. In that case, I would say if uh, I think I have heard of that, and in, actually. In in that case, I will say that I think consent is the most important thing. If Shirley didn't want for his family to be consulted, then they must have had their reasons, um, in my personal opinion. That, yeah, that's just the fundamental point is consent. Once you uh, step beyond that bounds, unless it's been a couple hundred years, you know, I would I would say then, yeah, the family doesn't need to be consulted. I mean, I, I think like then I would question whether the film should have been made at all. It shows a lack of understanding to me of like what it means to be a storyteller and what it means to empathize with people and move into other people's shoes, if that makes sense. Because while I agree with the general statement that like obviously you as a storyteller, you have to step into other people's shoes. I absolutely believe that you can't just write about your own experience and that should not just be the case. I know that a lot of star storytellers that do, uh, that are POC, for example, are generally against white authors writing POC characters as main characters. Um, and the reason why is because there is a kind of nuance and depth and complexity that can't be captured to its full extent there. And, um, you know, it, it just really is uncomfortable to me that a movie that, again, would state, would, would claim to be about racism, that the person writing it 
wouldn't have an understanding of that. Like, I think that's actually the most revealing thing to me is regardless of the intention of the person who wrote it, the fact that like all three of the writers are white, the fact that they seemingly think they can completely step into the shoes of a black character and write their experience in a nuanced and meaningful way uh, without consulting their family, for example. And I don't know how much consultation they did with other people in the Black community, but that in itself feels inauthentic to me. That in itself feels like a misunderstanding of racism to me. To some extent, to understand racism, I think, uh, and to understand any kind of empathetic issue means to understand that if you don't experience it, you won't ever be able to fully understand it or fully feel it. I would partially disagree with what you're saying um, in the sense that I think you can tell someone else's story from your own perspective as long as you acknowledge this. And I agree that, you know, someone who is white might not ever be able to ex- understand the racism that Black people experience and have experienced in America. And I don't think you need to. I think the fact that Shirley wasn't the central focus in this film was almost artistic in its own way because they don't purport be this to be a retelling of Shirley's life. In many ways, in many ways, we can see that this is, you know, biased source material. We can see that Tony says lots of ignorant things where he says things like, I'm blacker than you ever will be because I'm poor. And I think that's a big argument that a lot of people, white people in America make is like, I don't have white privilege. I'm poor. You're not. And we can see that from this perspective, Tony truly thinks he's justified. And through the letters, we can see that this isn't really a story entirely about Shirley. And maybe that seems off because we, this is a a movie sort of that goes about, that's about race. And yet we have a different perspective. And yet this movie doesn't tell you, hey, we're trying to talk to you about Shirley's life. It almost tries to tell you, this is how white people view race. This is the lack of nuance that white people view race in. I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that this movie is biased and that this movie is not going to be something that, you know, not every black person is getting people, black people might not be able to relate to it because they shouldn't relate to it. This is sort of almost a fantasy in its own way. And that sounds kind of, you know, it sounds kind of bad, but it's true. We see through Tony's eyes when he goes to, does things where, He's like, but I was trying to help you. It wasn't about me. And we as the audience see, no, but it was about you. Just like this movie is about you. Everything here is about you. It's interesting you use the word fantasy, um, Connie, because the, the whole thing I was thinking throughout this, this viewing experience was that this feels like sort of a Disney movie's take on anti-racism. And that's not necessarily a pejorative. It's just, I don't know, perhaps the somewhat light and you know whimsical tone which you acknowledge along with the Uh, I guess, surface level examination of the subject matter gave that impression for me. And I I guess going by uh, your logic, it's not necessarily a bad thing if that's what it intended to be. And it wanted to give that sort of um, lighthearted, non-serious tone. Uh, But it's it's something interesting I found uh, personally when watching it. To kind of wrap up this particular part of our discussion, um, I, I think that... Yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from, Connie, on this one. I just think that, like, personally, um, I don't feel like the film is strong enough to show you that it's a fantasy. Like, I think it feels like a fantasy from uh, a point of view where you're critical of what you're being fed. But I think a lot of the scenes come off very unironically. Like, they believe what they're saying. And so, like, for example, in that exchange where it's like, like the I'm blacker than you exchange, you're totally right. 
a lot of white people look at, um, you know, race that way, but we don't really get messaging that goes against that. We don't really get um, investigation into that. And we don't really get a lot of contradiction of some of the things that Tony does. And I think that's kind of where I'm like, I'm not sure where this movie lands. So I definitely agree with a lot of the points you make actually. And I, I, I think that there are shortcomings of the, of the film in this uh, sense, because in some ways, Shirley was a caricature and he was overly a caricature. Um, it was almost, he was like the manic pixie dream girl but of race movies because he was this, you know, well-spoken man who's mysterious. And he, it, some, some, sometimes I just felt like this doesn't feel like a real person. Like this isn't, I, I, I don't understand anything about you. I just know that you're enigmatic and that you have very strong principles. The one thing I feel like the one redeeming moment of the fact that Shirley was a character was at the end where, um, you know, there's that whole metaphor of, yeah, I, I, you know what, I am successful. I'm more successful than you, Tony, but I live in this castle all by myself. And at the end of the movie, we see Tony returns home to all his friends and family. And then uh, Shirley goes home alone and his, his house is beautiful, but he's all alone. And you can see the, like the little, the chair, like the throne that he has in his room and it feels incredibly lonely. And then you can see almost that pain. That is the one moment in the movie where I'm like, Shirley has been represented in a beautiful artistic way because I can see the pain, the loneliness of not having anyone else who looks like him be successful because they're not geniuses like him. And it's lonely being a genius. It's not as lonely being someone who is Tony, who is, you know, not as as amazingly smart, but he's white. Yeah, that's a really interesting take, Connie. Uh, and, you know, speaking of uh, the whole differentiation between presenting a story from different perspectives, perhaps biased perspectives that can influence uh, audiences' reactions. Uh, I, Tanya, was kind of notorious for that in the, the sort of feedback uh, and the uh, backlash, I guess you could call it, of that adaptation drew quite a bit of um, controversy. Marta, you want to shed some light on that for us? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so I, Tanya, and as the tagline states, is based on irony-free, wildly contradictory, totally true interviews with Tanya Harding and Jeff Galuli. It's a 2017 film starring Margot Robbie that illuminates a set of really different complications in adapting true stories to the medium of film than The Green Book does. Of course, it's got overlap, though. Uh, so a successful figure skater from Oregon in the early 1990s, Tanya Harding was caught up in scandal when one of her main rivals for a spot on the national figure skating team, Nancy Kerrigan, was clubbed in the right kneecap by a man hired by Harding's then-husband, Jeff Galuli, and also several other men. Though Harding originally claimed to have no knowledge of her husband's plan at the time, she later admitted that she failed to report some things to the police. However, she continued to insist that she had nothing to do with the attack itself. Galuli, along with Harding's bodyguard and two other men, were investigated by the FBI for the attack and each served a sentence for the part he played in the conspiracy. Meanwhile, Harding went on to win the National Figure Skating Championships that year, and both her and Kerrigan, despite the latter woman's injury, made the United States national team. While Kerrigan eventually won a silver medal at the Olympics, Harding didn't place. Less than a month later, Harding pled guilty to the charge of, quote, conspiracy to hinder prosecution. 
Her national title was subsequently revoked and she was banned from the United States figure skating governing body, effectively meaning she could no longer compete or even professionally coach figure skating. The movie is not per se based on the actual attack. Rather, it's based in Harding and Gluey's recollections of the event, making it almost a miracle that the movie's structure isn't absolutely scattered. As it is, the characters contradict each other constantly, most often on topics like domestic and child abuse. According to Stephen Rogers, the movie's screenwriter, the film is an attempt to make people rethink the narrative they know about Harding and create a more nuanced portrayal of the primary cast of characters. He was also interested in exploring truth and perception of truth through the story. Nancy Kerrigan's perspective is notably absent from the film's framing device, which is a series of interviews with older versions of Harding, Galuli, and Harding's mother. Though questions of how its subjects were treated by the director definitely do apply, the other interesting phenomenon is how audiences have embraced Tanya in the film's aftermath. From sympathetic nods to her tough childhood to comparisons between her life and Kerrigan's, the movie has proven to be a sort of media redemption for the figure skater. Given that she's been a, quote, national punchline, everyone from Barack Obama to Jake Peralta on Brooklyn Nine-Nine have had their say. Ever since the incident, one could say the film was a well-needed redemption arc for Harding. It's interesting uh, you bringing up uh, the several pop culture uh, allusions to that because I'm, I'm thinking this, this whole inquiry was sort of kickstarted by Connie seeing an, an interesting uh, TikTok comment. Connie, you want to elaborate on that? While I was scrolling through TikTok as we do now because we're mindless, <laughs> um, I was just I, I saw this TikTok and it was about uh, Tanya Harding and it was just a clip of the uh, I Tanya and I scrolled through the comment sections and I was actually quite surprised because. I have uh, seen YouTube footi- footage of this event a few years ago before this movie was made, which I think was in like 2017. So, and I remember most of the comments not being very sympathetic towards Harding. It was really quite negative. And then I was quite surprised to find on TikTok that the general sentiment has changed. Uh, a lot of people in, my, in our generation, Gen Z, are extremely sympathetic towards Harding. That was uh, further exemplified in some YouTube videos that I went through of all the top videos of Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. And I've noticed some special animosity, in fact, towards Kerrigan herself. And I found that that to be quite interesting to see how this perspective has shifted so quickly based on a single film that um, someone who went from being, you know, America's sweetheart sort of has taken a fall where people are characterizing her as someone who was the anti-victim of the event that she was a victim in. Uh, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because it sort of sort of brings to mind that the the audience's perception is just as malleable as the character's perception is, at least as it's presented in the film. Uh, and Marta, you're mentioning the whole idea of being Tanya Harding as a sort of a, a cultural shorthand for you know <laughs> incapacitating someone. But what I found funny was in the actual film, uh, Galuli's uh, fictional portrayal. Uh, by Sebastian Stan said that you know his name Galuli became the shorthand for that. So it's almost as if the movie is also acknowledging that uh, shifting, you know, malleable, imperfect uh, perspective on the whole series of events. Yeah, I'll add that I think um, you know it's really interesting and ironic. Uh, based on irony-free interviews, right? But I think it's very ironic how the movie actually became, um, you know, became received because like you watch the movie and the 
the message that the media twists things is not subtle. <laughs> like it's, it's really not the idea of perception and how uh, people turn on Tanya or agree with Tanya or, um, you know, how she goes from being super famous and having little children ask for her to sign her name to everyone hating her. Like I became the most loved person in America and then I became the most hated one. That's not a subtle message of the movie. It's very clearly about how stories and narratives and the information shared shapes what we believe. And it's ironic that people have so quickly latched onto this movie as a redemption arc for Tanya. And you know, it, it, it breaks the fourth wall because it wants to point you out uh, this out to you. It breaks the fourth wall because it wants to say, hey, this is media. This is still media. Like we're giving you the true story of Tanya Harding, quote unquote, but it's still media. And that means it's going to shape your perception in a certain way. To compare to the Green Book, this makes me think of the screenwriter of I, Tanya, a little bit more sympathetically than I do look upon the Green Book screenwriter, just because I think the message is so clear. And like to see so many people not like seemingly not take that in is um, like almost funny, actually. You shouldn't believe everything you watch in a movie, right? What What's the audience's responsibility to these people to figure out what's actually true? And moreover, how do you, how do you keep yourself from being swayed about real people when watching these? Because movies are ultimately still um, emotional appeals. That's what they're meant to do. Mm -hmm. And just to incorporate some screenwriting lingo into this, it, it seems that, you know, Steve Rogers, the, the screenwriter's whole design principle for this movie, i.e. how he chose to present the story, was sort of leaning into that, uh, you know, ambiguity uh, and, you know, mercurial nature of, of the people involved. Because as you say, Marta, the characters break the fourth wall, they have differing accounts, they basically can't agree on the common facts, uh, not unlike uh, a lot of the viewers of the film who seem to quickly turn to sympathize with Tanya, you know, after these events have happened. And I think to relate it to Connie's earlier point, it's kind of interesting how we as a younger generation have been brought up with a, a different narrative just because of the way this particular film was shaped, as opposed to people that were, you know, watching the actual thing unfold like, you know, 20 odd years ago. Yeah, to follow up on that, I agree with uh, most of the things that you guys have said. Um, this movie, it's, it's not a crime movie. It's not recollecting an event. It's its a movie. And that is on us as people. We as the audience cannot use an entertaining piece of media to gauge the integrity of these women as if they're truly fictional characters, you know, can't characterize their personalities, their romantic relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Not only is it misogynistic, you know, going to this like woman versus woman thing, it's really it's beyond the point and I think that's something that the comment section of many of these videos are missing where they're going into Nancy Kerrigan's um, family status how she was you know brought up in a rich family we can't say that she was a spoiled princess which is also certain comments that I've been seeing on YouTube um, it's unfair to use this movie as collateral against Kerrigan's character it's really just beyond the point um, this is a characterization of Tanya not a legal case and I think the film does a good job of showing that for example with what Marta said with breaking the fourth wall um, in that way I agree that using only Tanya uh, perspective is effective because that's an interesting fact of the movie is that we saw Tanya Harding contribute to it. In fact, she was um, she and Mar uh, Margot Robbie who played her in the film. They're very close together, actually. 
you can see a couple of pictures of them on the right carpet and they definitely connect with each other. Margaret Robbie has said that she really, you know, she respects Harding. And I think the film does a good job of showing that this movie is definitely skewed into Harding's, um, like skewed towards Harding. And it's not a story about the crime. It's a story about a woman's life and a, an event which happens to define it. And Kerrigan noticeably wasn't involved in this film. And that is a piece of controversy that I have seen on the internet regarding this film, saying that Nancy Kerrigan's absence from this film creates an even more biased piece of work. And I think that to counter that point, if anything, Kerrigan's lack of association is good because we can use this as evidence that this movie is based on a single perspective. It is creating a malleable story. It is a biased story. Just like Green Book, it is a biased story. And I need to make this obvious to the audience. This is the responsibility of a filmmaker is to not purport something that is not true. You have to do these things consciously. However, is it fair to take creative liberties on the crime that was committed against Kerrigan? No, that's not fair. She's still living and she doesn't deserve to see anything that's categorically not true about the very vicious crime that happened to her because we must remember that uh, preceding this, there were also even death threats that were made to her. Mm -hmm. And I will note that, you know, speaking of the real life biographies of these two, um, even though Kerrigan is sort of played up as a princess in the movie. In fact, she also came from pretty humble origins, not too dissimilar to Tanya Harding herself. So that you know, similarity was downplayed both by the media at the time, but also sort of in this film adaptation. So it's interesting, once again, to compare the reality to that um, fictional interpretation. I think like perhaps um, getting Nancy Kerrigan's consent to retell the story might've been like, a potentially uh, good move on the part of the screenwriter. That being said, getting her literal perspective on it would have been outside of the scope of what the movie is trying to do. Because again, the movie is not based on the event. It's based on the interviews. Again, this is really what I like about Itanya's tagline is that it makes really clear in kind of like it's black comedy fashion that it is based on interviews. It is based on what people are saying about an event. It's complicated though, because on one hand, I definitely do agree that um, I, I do think it's on the audience mostly in this case to realize that this is not necessarily a true account. That being said, um, for the sake of like living people, you know, because these people are still alive. I do think there's potentially some thought that can be put into um, like what the effect of the movie is ultimately. Like the intention of um, the screenwriter might be something different than the actual effect. And I think like, again, I think there's a lot of subtle nuanced points to this movie. Like every single time Tanya says, that's not my fault. I don't believe her. Like, I don't think Margot Robbie plays the character like you should believe her every time she says, it's not my fault. Because it does sound kind of petty and kind of like an excuse and kind of like she's not taking responsibility. But that being said, I, I do think that these kinds of more subtle ways that the characters are acted or the way they're portrayed might go over a general audience's head, which I think is kind of what we've been seeing. And, you know, speaking of performances, I believe Alison Jenny did win an Oscar for her performance as Tony Harding's mother. Uh, but that one was noticeably only based on interview footage because they could not contact her actual mother. Uh, and I believe after the film came out, uh, she particularly uh, denounced that portrayal, saying that, you know, the accusations of child abuse were not at all accurate. Um, so once again, we have competing narratives here that sort of impact uh, the performances, which is kind of interesting. 
Hey, we hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just wanted to take a quick break to introduce our recurring segment called Newsreel, where we share the latest breaking news stories in the world of film and media. With TIFF having just wrapped up recently, and given the theme of today's episode, we thought it would be worthy to mention that several of the featured films this year have been under the Based on a True Story genre, including Spencer, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and The Electric Life of Louis Wayne. Kenneth Branagh's semi-autobiographical film Belfast, inspired by his childhood upbringing in Ireland, won the People's Choice Award at TIFF this year. This coveted prize has long been viewed as a predictor for later Oscar-winning films, with some of the previous winners at TIFF being Slumdog Millionaire, 12 Years a Slave, and, coincidentally, Green Book. The issues and responsibilities faced by biographical filmmakers, which we touch upon in this episode, are just as relevant when considering these newer films. For instance, in Michael Showalter's The Eyes of Tammy Faye, based on the 2000 documentary of the same name, Jessica Chastain portrays Tammy Faye Baker, the wife of infamous televangelist and later convicted criminal Jim Baker. Showalter's film isn't the first fictional take on the Baker couple. For instance, a 1990 television film called Fall from Grace starred Kevin Spacey as Jim Baker. Talk about double meaning and irony there. However, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, similar to I, Tonya, seems to be an attempt to change public opinion on the titular character and to rewrite her narrative. Faye Baker, later Tammy Faye Mesner, after she divorced her husband and remarried, was often maligned by the media during her time for her televangelist zeal, her garish fashion sense, and her association with her first criminal husband. Because of this, some of Faye Baker's more progressive views, which contradicted her conservative Christian circle, namely her sympathy towards homosexuals during the AIDS crisis, were overlooked. Mesner passed away in 2007, but her daughter, Tammy Sue, not only acted as a consultant for the film, but also composed an original song. So maybe there's something we can learn about writing biographical films from this example. That's a wrap for this week's newsreel. Now, back to the show. I just, I want to go back to um, Marta's point about how these people are alive, which is not something that it was entirely true for Green Book. Um, uh, Shirley, I think, knew about the film, but when it was released, he was no longer alive. Uh, neither was um, uh, Lip. Um, for this film, we have two people who, this event, you know, wasn't that long ago, and we have two people who are very much alive right now, and I think there must be something said about the negative impact that this must have on Kerrigan again having to relive this. And I think that it's kind of disappointing to see that the audience cannot differentiate between something that is clearly, you know, a character of an event. Just going through the comment section, we can see people characterizing Kerrigan as a homewrecker, um, people calling her a rich girl who always gets looked at positively. Um, people are saying that they hate how she's never acknowledged Tanya as a victim as well and saying just in general very misogynistic things the filmmaker has gone to every extent possible to say that yes this is a positive retelling of tanya's story this is a positive characterization of tanya but we are basing this solely on tanya yeah it's interesting you brought up that, that reception connie because i know there are a lot of parallels drawn between harding and perhaps to a certain extent kerrigan uh, and you know monica Lewinsky about how the, the media and the public sort of interpreted those figures and how that changed over time. Obviously don't want to stress that similarity too much, but it is interesting how they, they're sort of analogous. Yeah, I mean, I'll also note that I wish 
people did look into I, Tanya a little more deeply, a little more beyond like, did Tanya do it? Did Tanya not do it? Is she a victim? Is she not, not a victim? Because like you think about the whole princess versus redneck play up and how it's not really the entire reality. The film acknowledges that. Like the film literally says that's not the reality. Yeah, there's a scene where Tanya, Tanya says the media was trying to make it out like it was like a redneck versus a princess. They were trying to do that characterization. And, you know, I find it interesting because really when you think about it, yes, um, like Galuli is not represented very well in this film, but I think the true kind of like villain of the film is uh, her bodyguard, Sean, yeah, I, I don't remember his last name, but I think he's the kind of true villain of the story, you know, being like, um, yeah, I work in counter counterterrorism. <laughs> I and it's hilarious, but like you watch the interviews and that man said that. Like that man actually said that. I think like it would be really great if people read into Itanya a little bit more. And I think a lot of people do, but I think it would be great if like kind of the mass public read into Itanya a little bit more because they would see the same beats of the media back in the 90s in the narrative telling of the story. Itanya still has a villain. Itanya still has heroes. It is a story like every other story. And it is trying to point that out to you so you become a better consumer of stories. And I think... Like, if more people looked into that, um, it would be more successful as a movie. I, um, I, I, I have a difficult time faulting the director and the screenwriter with that because I do think they went to a lot of lengths to try to make that message clear. I think it's really frustrating that the takeaway of this film for so many people is this girl on girl cat fight. That's, you know, that's not what it is. And it feels like this movie is about a woman who's faced so much, so much misogyny from the media, from people talking about, I think, I think did Tanya have a sex tape? I think, I think that's something that is true. Jeff Galuli released a sex tape of him yeah. and Tanya after he like I think after he got out of prison I learned that fact and I was like that's wild I cannot yeah. believe anyways that's that's the thing we talk so much about oh, look at Tanya Harding she's a sex tape she's not behaved she's not a lady so much of the hatred that was directed towards Tanya was misogynistic and completely and utterly just you know reprehensible when it comes to pitting women against each other and then we have a new movie come out and then it's change of perspective and yet we once again revert to our primitive roots of misogyny and now the comments are once again girl versus girl now it's uh, uh nancy kerrigan is a slut nancy kerrigan is a spoiled princess nancy kerrigan this nancy kerrigan that and this is a whole point is the fact that the media unfairly pinpointed this woman as whatever characterization of woman they want to make and now we're going and doing that with kerrigan again and i think it's not the filmmaker's fault they have put like so much evidence that this is kind of a biased perspective and the the audience completely like misinterpreted it at all you know it's interesting you mentioned earlier connie um how this is different from green book because the subjects are still very much alive um and of course the, the discourse is amplified by that very fact uh, and in that way, I think it, it sort of relates to the farewell because, of course, the, the subjects documented in that story are are very much alive, thankfully. Yeah, the farewell. Uh, let's talk about the farewell. So the farewell was based on an actual lie, and it centers around Billy, who's a Chinese American woman, and her relationship with her grandmother, who's living in China, who they affectionately known uh, know her as Nene 
which means grandmother in Mandarin. So when that night is diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, Billy's family decides to withhold this information from her, even going as far as to manipulate hospital documents, which is in the Western world is like, hey, that's super illegal. You should probably go to jail for that. Um, the doctor states that her illness has become so advanced that it would be irresponsible not to hospitalize her. However, the family fears that Nana is too old to handle the news and that keeping it a secret might prolong her life, which is a reflection of, you know, Eastern ideals. The film follows Billy, who has been educated with Western ideals of personal autonomy as she re reluctantly goes along with her family's plans to not tell Nana the truth. And then, you know, the family goes to, on to throw this elaborate wedding, along with many other elaborate schemes to mask their intentions of having, you know, a proper goodbye. The semi-autobiographical film is a personal story of writer and director Lulu Wang, which shows themes including the culture clash of growing up Chinese-American, which is something I can personally relate to, and also the good lie, which is an idea that centers around one of China and a lot of other Eastern social and political phenomenons. Uh, Wang's real life that I was diagnosed with lung cancer back in 2013, and her family reacted in a similar manner as depicted in the film. This was originally an essay for the This, this American Life podcast, uh, and then Wong adopted her piece for the silver screen, uh, yearning for this ch distinctly Chinese-American story, which is very interesting because I, when I was watching this, I was like, yeah, I totally relate to this. Like, I, I didn't realize how much, like, this is literally my own grandmother. This is literally my own story. Um, yeah, so uh, Wong opted to write the script in both Mandarin and English, although unfortunately, like Billy, Wang cannot read or write Chinese. Um, so this obstacle translated into a collaborative effort with not only translators, but also the director's mother. So this was definitely a family project. Wang's mother was not the only family member to be a part of the film's production. Nanae's younger sister and Wang's great aunt also stepped into the spotlight to portray herself into the film. Even the real life Nanae had an indirect say about the conceptualization of the farewell. Initially, Wong did not want to sh uh, shoot in the same city her grandmother lived in because Nana had still not learned of her diagnosis, but Wong eventually caved to her protest and even had her visit the set frequently. Nana conversed with the cast and crew all while the film's plot sat right under her nose. The real life Nana did not eventually find out about her illness until early 2019 after the film's the theatrical release in China under, under the name Don't Tell Her, One of Nana's friends had sent her a review of the movie that detailed the entire family's history, and I finally learned about the charade her family had put her through to hide the news of her illness. So this is distinctly different from the other movies in the sense that this is autobiographical. Uh, so this is definitely, it's semi-autobiographical because names are changed and certain events and uh, locations are changed, of course, which also sort of changes uh, its themes from different stories. I found it interesting how you sort of brought your own personal connection to it, Connie, saying that it was, it was quite relatable in some aspects. So I, I think that sort of, speaks to, if not accuracy, um, the, the ability of the film to emulate uh, that, you know, personal experience for, for a lot of people of, of, you know, such a background. Um, and in, in that sense, I guess it, it does achieve uh, what it wants besides just adhering to the facts or not of Lulu Wong's own, you know, personal narrative. The really interesting part about this movie is that it manages to ironically very be very accurate and be very detailed because it is so broad in some ways like it's trying to hit upon a lot of the beats of what I think like the differences between Chinese and American culture are in this specific case and that becomes very relatable um, I think in a lot of ways um, to people with that background. To talk about relatability um, there is a question that we 
uh, all came up with when we were actually uh, people that people came up with while we were, you know, brainstorming this podcast. And one of the questions is, is it worse to have a film that is based on someone who is still alive without telling them and without getting their consent? You know, is it more responsible to wait until someone has passed to tell their story the way the Green Book was? And I just want to immediately kind of comment on that, because when I saw this question, I thought it was really interesting because I, I don't think it's a I didn't think it was a problem at all due to my like Eastern slash Western heritage. You know, when I saw the question, I was like, this is a question like I think the answer is obvious. Like, you know, Eastern culture, family is willing to do anything for family. And there really is no concept of boundaries or personal privacy, especially if it entitles success to your children or grandchildren. And I, I really didn't realize that, you know, that would even be a topic of discussion. And, and I particularly love um, your footnote to that, that same page, Connie, because you said, well, if they're alive, they can still criticize it. So that's another reason to <laughs> support it. And thankfully, the, the real Nana is, you know, still with us. So in a sense, it, it's the, the, the fiction, you know, bleeding into the reality all the more. I think that the other interesting point is like a person raised in the West, like I myself was, You'd think that the most emotional beat points came from Billy's reaction because she is open about it. I, I think like there are parts in the movie where I'm looking at Billy's grief and it, it general it genuinely makes me tear up. Like I I I feel her grief. I feel how much it hurts to have to hide it when she has never had to do that before. I think the part of the movie that really truly made me understand the grief of um, the family the most was the part where I think it's like the dad's brother goes up on stage and you know he he's giving a toast at a wedding but then he starts thanking his mother and he starts like kind of over excessively thanking her for a wedding and it's like almost inappropriate because this is a wedding and you're on the verge of tears and you can see how hard he's kind of trying like not to show it because he he genuinely does believe that or he might believe that it's for like it's the best for her and he's trying so hard but it's so difficult for him to process his grief like that we think of it as bad but I do think there's a true type of like honor or like you know just really something beautiful about being like we're gonna we're gonna hide what we feel because we want you to be happy and uh just a fun fact um i went on to like chinese tiktok i wanted to do you to look at some of the general sentiments about this film and i noticed a lot of people were like yeah, i did that with my grandmother too like people were relating to this and they're like yeah my grandmother she was you know she's dying of cancer or she was dying or something and we didn't we didn't let her know and I remember thinking because when I first watched this movie I was talking to my mom about it and I was like I, I can't imagine faking hospital documents that just feels so irresponsible and me and my mom actually we had an interesting debate about this because we were talking about how it just feels so irresponsible and I was like I can't I can't imagine doing that because what if maybe you wanted to make reparations to someone or if you had decisions to make a will or something certain things that you want to do because I come from a society where we prioritize individual autonomy. And it's really interesting to see my mom's alternating perspective where it's like, does it matter? It's most important that you're happy or it's most important that your grandmother is happy. And I think that this, the semi-autobiographical um, medium has like really, it has really captured this. And I think it was probably like Lulu Wang, like 
she was probably the best person to capture something like this, someone who's experienced something like this. And I think that kind of goes into the fact that what we were talking about experience with Green Book earlier, and this is what differentiates it from experience. I mean, uh, from Green, uh, Green Book is because we had that firsthand experience. Everything feels so raw. Everything feels like an argument I would have with my mother. And it just makes the viewer so, it just feels so much more transcendent when the viewer is watching it. Yeah, it's interesting. You've touched upon that relatability, Connie, and that very, you know, palpable experience on the part of Lulu Wong. Uh, and, you know, Marta mentioned realism a little earlier. And just to throw in another literary buzzword, there's this thing we like to call death of the author, where we like to separate a creator from the, the work they produce and not necessarily uh, pathologize protagonists and think that they're an exact autobiographical representation of the writer. Um, so in this case, you know, Lulu Wong has made it quite explicit that she is not Billy. Billy is a completely different fictional character. But at the same time, you know, kind of you draw all these comparisons and many others have as well. So I, I guess it sort of begs the question, and I'm curious to hear from both of you, you know, where do we draw that line of separation when it comes to a, a film like this, which is, you know, adapting someone's real experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think death of the author is really tricky in this case in particular, because like the thing is, um, I, I'll, I'll preface this with a really uh, brief story. I had a conversation once with um, a friend of mine, she's Bengali, and we were talking about, I think just like some Western movie that represented brown people badly. Um, and I was like, do you think you would want more of those, more of that representation in Western culture? And um, she was like, no, I don't think so. Cause I think they would do it badly. And I was like, but I mean like Bengali American or Bengali Canadian, like you're not just doing the experience of Bengali people in Bangladesh, but you're doing the experience of people like you, people who are kind of caught between both. And uh, she ended up getting back to me after a while, like she had watched a TV show, um, Never Have I Ever, I think it's called, it's like Mindy Kaling. And she was like, yeah, I actually think it's good. Like, even though not every single brown person can relate to this, it made me feel happy to see my experience up there. And so I think the semi-autobiographical nature of this is really important with that particular perspective, because it's like, yeah, this experience is not going to express the experience of every Chinese American person out there. It's not going to express the experience of maybe even this, like the specific writer, but it's important to have more of those stories because they they matter to people like they do matter to people and as more people as you know um countries in north america become more diverse and like we see the impacts of like racism on people growing up kind of between these cultures i think it's really valuable to have that experience that is simultaneously generalized and specific um, for people growing up who can relate to it. Yeah, I second um, your description of this. It's both it's both very niche and it also applies to you know a very broad category of Asian Americans. And I think the really interesting thing about this is a lot of Asian Americans resonated with it. But you know, just you know. Uh, specific not I mean specifically Chinese Americans would relate a lot to it because I don't know if this is a thing that's also in other cultures I wouldn't want to speak for them but uh, something that's interesting is that this movie didn't really make that many waves at the Chinese box office it didn't it didn't do too well in the Chinese box office because it's not something that Chinese born people you know can understand because they have more of like a like a singular 
you know, like they have a they have a monoculture. It's more singular, whereas we really see the dual duality of it. And I just I think that's yeah, that's something really interesting. Mm -hmm. it, it's sort of interesting going back to the whole production going behind this. Uh, you know, we've spoken a lot about the the authenticity of it, which is a little bit different from accuracy. I think they there are two you know distinct things. Um, and, you know, there are talks that Disney would sort of uh, take the helm on this particular project, but Lulu Wong had uh, certain grievances with the direction they wanted to take. Uh, and you can sort of imagine how that Disney brand of generalization might have resulted in a very different film than what we have gotten. So I think in that sense, that, that firm creative control on Lulu Wong's part probably, you know, made for a movie that, that seemed to resonate with uh, a lot of people, including yourself, Connie. Yeah, well, seeing as how Disney f***ed up Mulan, I, I would like them to stay away from anything that has to do with Asians. Thank you. I, I think we can all get behind that. Um, thank you so much, Martin and Connie. It's been fascinating discussing all three of these films with you. Thanks so much, Vikram. It's been great. Thank you, Vikram. Also, biopic. <laughs> this, this debate <laughs> will never end. It's not biopic. Oh, well. Thanks for listening to our conversation. For more information on the films we discussed, including some of the reviews and analyses we referenced in the episode, check out the links in the description. You can also keep up with all of SVC's activities, including our past journal publications and upcoming club meeting information, on our website, also linked in the description. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Victoria University's Student Administrative Council, VUSAC, as well as the University of Toronto Students' Union, UTSU, for their continued support of our club's screenwriting at Victoria College. Finally, I want to give a big shout-out to our entire podcast team. Our audio editor, Kareen Langmuir, our writing and research team, Nujat Tabasam and Kaelin Ball, our content coordinator, Connie Zen, and finally, our content head and co-host, Martin Yelska. This has been Vikram Nujawan, Fade to Black. Mm-hmm.